0: Let's give our attention now to the reading and the hearing of God's holy, inspired and inerrant word. Luke chapter seven, beginning in verse 11. Soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. And he said to her, do not weep. Then he came up and he touched the buyer and the bearer stood still. And Jesus said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and he began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all and they glorified God, saying, a great prophet has arisen among us and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. Let's pray. O Lord, we do indeed give you thanks for your word Thank you for preserving it for us through the ages that we might have it this day. Your very word to us, your breathed out word, Lord, that you have given to the church that we might hear from you, that we might learn from you. Oh God, that we may read it and preach it and by your spirit grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. Father, I thank you for your people gathered here this morning. I pray that you would indeed work in their hearts Lord. that you would help them in their time of need, that you would comfort, even convict, Father, that you would help them. Father, I pray that you would help me, your servant. Oh, God, protect me from error. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing and acceptable unto you, O oh God. You are our rock and our redeemer. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The story of Walter Williams, Walter Williams might very well be called by some, including the Holmes County, Mississippi coroner, whose name was Dexter Howard. Walter Williams' story might very well be called a miracle, summoned to the home of Walter Williams in early March of 2014, the coroner, Howard found the man, Williams, to be without a pulse and completely lifeless. Certain that he was indeed dead, he did his job. He declared it so and proceeded to place him in a body bag and transport him to the funeral home. But that is where the story takes a big turn. As Howard and the funeral home director took the bag and placed it on the gurney and wheeled it into the embalming room, the body bag began to move. That there should make a stop for a minute, right? The body bag began to move. Within a few moments, the movements became more pronounced, like the body was actually kicking. As you can imagine, these two men are now moved to action, right? They unzipped the bag, which is quite impressive, right? I probably would have ran away. Uh, But they unzipped the bag, and there they found Williams, struggling to breathe. Walter Williams was very much alive. But how? What had happened? Here's the coroner's best explanation in his own words from the news account. The only reasonable explanation I can think of is that Walter Williams' defibrillator implanted beneath the skin of his chest jump-started his heart after he was placed in the body bag. But reason aside, the bottom line is that it is a miracle. He was convinced it is a miracle. So many questions, right? So many questions. Was Walter Williams really dead? Did this coroner actually know what he was doing? Is this really a miracle? Well, we may never know. In case you're wondering, for the record, he did die. I mean, Walter Williams really died just a short two weeks later. He did die. But the point of this story is not to lead us to debate the details of the account. The point of the story and why I share it with you this morning is to remind us that no matter the circumstance, all of us, whether we are followers of Jesus Christ or not, all of us are usually led, and I heard it from some of you, we're led to the same response when we hear about the seemingly unstoppable force of death being halted right in its tracks. Shock, shock awe, absolute wonder, even wow, amen. You see, we live in a world that expects death to get the final say over human life. In fact, we embrace death as something natural, a natural part of human existence. And in fact, particularly in the West, we have learned to compartmentalize, death, and even minimize the grief that follows death. So when life appears to triumph over death, no matter what the circumstance, what are we? We're amazed. Perhaps we even find a glimmer of hope within us. And that, that is what makes the account before us In Luke 7, so marvelous. This account reminds all of us that death does not have the final say because Jesus Christ, the Lord of life himself, not only has power over sin and death, but he also has the power to grant life, even everlasting life, to all who would believe in him by faith. So, to begin our study of this text before us, I want us to first look at verses 11 and 12 and consider what I'll call the Paul of death. So, if you're taking notes, this is the first of three points this morning the Paul, not P A U L, but P A L L, the Paul of death. In verse 11, we learn that soon after Jesus had healed the servant of the centurion in Capernaum, that's what we looked at together last week, we learn that just after that, Jesus makes this approximately 25-mile journey southwest to a small town called Nain. Luke also tells us that he was accompanied by his disciples' disciples and a great crowd. So it's not just his 12 apostles and maybe his closest disciples, but he's got this huge crowd following him. Now, you can only imagine what this traveling group looked like, right? It's big, it's probably really noisy, full of all manner of of clamor, people still talking about what Jesus had just done and all the things. But surely this group, this parade, stood in stark contrast. What confronts them at the town gate of Na'in. Verse 12, you can see it there, says that as they neared that gate, they were met with a funeral procession leaving the town. So you can understand the scene more fully. Let me tell you that according to the custom of that day, the dead were to be buried outside of the town, outside of the city, usually at twilight. And mostly the same day, if it was possible, the same day that they had died. So some of the people in these processions, I don't want you to get the picture that it was quiet. It was often very loud. These processions would have hired musicians and their job was to grab their flutes and other instruments and play a mournful dirge, right, to play music. Others, believe it or not, there were professional mourners There were women who wept and wailed as the procession went along as a public expression of communal grief. Then, of course, there would be all those from the town who had come to pay respects. And Luke mentions that as well, that a whole group followed them from within the town. And together, this group would go and they would lay their loved one to rest in the rocky tombs of the cemetery. So get this in your head, the procession of those following Jesus, celebrating his miracle power and presence are met by a procession of profound grief. There's a collision taking place here. Just picturing this scene should remind us, just as we were reminded last week, it should remind us of the tragedy of the human condition Mourning and grief over death is our common sorrow. And it is so because of sin. Remember, God gave life to mankind in the garden, but mankind chose what? They chose sin instead. And in choosing sin, all of us from that point forward have come under judgment if there had never been any sin, think about this, then there would have never been any death. There would have never been any funerals. There would have never been any tears at all. But the word reminds us, and I'll give you one example, Romans five 12, I'll read it. You can write it down and look later for yourself. Sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Sin came in through Adam, with it came death, and so death spread to everyone, because everyone sinned. Martin Luther had a lot to say in his ministry, as many of you know. Uh, He wisely said in a sermon on this text, what I'm gonna quote. He said, when you hear of death, you must think not only of the grave and the coffin, and of the horrible manner in which life is separated from the body and how the body is destroyed and brought to naught. But you must think of the cause by which man is brought to death and without which death and that which accompanies it would be impossible. Namely, sin and the wrath of God on account of sin. That's well, just a really flavorful maybe, Maybe that's the wrong word, but loquacious way to say death is indeed the wages of sin. The wages of sin is death. So meeting Jesus and his parade of disciples and followers at the gate of Nain is a parade of grief, a parade of grief that is testifying to the tragic and the lost condition of a dying humanity. And to make the contrast even more stark, Luke tells us about the person that would have been at the very front of the procession. Now, near the front, the way these processions work is near the front was the actual person who was dead. In this case, the dead man. He would have been wrapped in a burial shroud. He would have been lying on what's called a buyer. It's kind of an open, flat stretcher. And he would have been carried on the shoulders of some men, the pallbearers, a term we still use today. But right in front of the deceased was the most immediate family. They led the procession. Not in the back, in the front. Much like today in our own funeral processions, not in walking, but in cars, right? Right in front. But notice, look again in verse 12. Who's there? It's not a big group, is it? Right in front of that dead man was his mother. The dead man is, quote from verse 12, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. With these words, an already sad situation is made worse. Here we have a widow who already knows grief, grieving once again, this time for a loss that must have seemed too great to bear. This dead man was her only son. And now, as was typical of that day, without a husband, without a son to protect and provide for her, and to carry on the family name, her future appeared hopeless. Sure. She had the love and the support of all those people behind her. But that would one day fade away. She, all practically speaking, is now all alone in the world. As she buries her son, she would bury her family's future as well. I know that you can see that at the very front of this procession, that pall of death is hanging thick and it is hanging dark. But at the other procession, at the front of the other procession, arriving, the one that's arriving from Capernaum, stands the one who can actually dispel the pall and even stop death in its very tracks. And so that brings us to verses 13 through 15. And to our second point this morning, which I'll call the triumph of resurrection. The triumph of resurrection. We read in verse 13, you can look, that when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and he said to her, do not weep. I wrote in my notes, wow, pause. Wow, When Jesus sees this woman, his very heart goes out to her. That's the meaning of this word. He had compassion on her. His heart went out toward her. Psalm 68, five says this. It says that God is the father of the fatherless and the protector of widows. And now right here in Nain, God in the flesh is proving it by showing his compassion to this widow, You see, Jesus is sensitive to the woman's sorrow. He knows that she is now all alone in the world. He knows that she is now void of family companionship. She's void of financial support. And this knowledge leads him to be drawn to her, to be drawn to her in love and in sympathy. He's unlike so many of us who recoil, in the face of others suffering. He's unlike so many of us who cannot find the words to say in the face of tragedy. He's unlike so many of us who would rather turn a blind eye to suffering and grief instead of entering into it with a heart of ministry. Unlike so many of us, Jesus marches right in to the middle of it. He walks right up to the widow And he says, do not weep. Now those words coming from you and I would seem completely out of line, wouldn't they? I mean, can you imagine just showing up at a funeral service one day, walking right up to the grieving person in the front and looking in the eye and saying, stop weeping. Do not weep. I mean, how insensitive would that be? You might actually find yourself on the floor before too long. But Jesus isn't us, is he? Jesus isn't us. He is the resurrection and the life. And he's about to show her why she shouldn't weep. He's about to show her why there's no need to weep. Look again with me at verses 14 and 15. And this time I want you to put yourself in the sandals of the ones who were there seeing this true miracle for themselves. Don't miss the wonder of it all. Look again at verses 14 and 15. He comes up and he touches the buyer and the bearer stood still. And he says, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up And he began to speak and Jesus gave him to his mother. Unlike last week's account of the centurion, we're given no information about this woman's faith. Instead, we just have a picture, a picture I think you should relish, a picture of Jesus Christ, our Lord moved by compassion to show his glorious power over sin and death for the sake of this woman. In fact, he didn't even wait to be asked, did he? He just moved in grace to take care of her needs. The Lord of life moved right in and said, I have a solution for this. And it's shocking. If you were there, this is shocking. Let me give you three things from this that make it really shocking. First, Jesus touched the buyer. Jesus touched it. According to cleanliness customs of the day, you didn't do that. Unless you were one of the ones that had been cleansed and set apart to be the pallbearers, you didn't do that. But Jesus is unable to be stained by sin. Remember when the leper came to him? Remember there in chapter five? Jesus did the unthinkable there too, didn't he? He reached out his hand and he touched the leper. In the same manner, Jesus reaches out his hand and he touches the buyer. He shows compassion. Second, with just the power of his word, he commands the man to rise. Now, the school Jews among this group would have already been thinking about something and it's clear by what they say in their response. They might've been thinking about, it wouldn't have been titled 1 Kings 17 at the time, but perhaps that story. They write, remember Elijah, the great prophet, who raised the widow's son from death. How did he do that, do you remember? He prayed to God. He also stretched out on top of him, right? He did this whole ceremony. Not Jesus. The greater Elijah speaks a word, speaks a word, and the man is resurrected right before his very eyes. And then I want us to look at that third shocking thing. And that shocking thing is the absolute absurdity of the words in verse 15. Look there again. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. Think about this for a moment. Dead men don't speak, right? Dead people don't sit up and dead people don't speak. You see, Luke, as we talked about, he's our investigative journalist, right? He's writing this gospel so that we may be certain and he draws out some very interesting facts along the way to make sure that you know that this really happened. So what is he saying here? He's basically saying this is not some Walter Williams story like I told you in the beginning, He's saying, it's not like that. There's nothing here to question. Luke wants you to know. He wants to make sure that you know, that you absolutely know without a shadow of a doubt that this man was really dead. As my friends say sometimes, he was dead, dead. He was deader than dead. And this really dead, dead man really came to life. That's the point of bringing it up again. This man, we could say in common language, who was indeed very dead, actually set up. He actually came back to life. And it's proved. He begins to speak. That's a detail that's important. This isn't some magic trick. This isn't the pallbearers reaching under and making him set up. No, he speaks. Everyone there that day were eyewitnesses to this miracle. I've got news for you, in case you're here this morning and you don't know this. Only Jesus, only Jesus, the son of God, can do this with just a word. Only Jesus can do this. I like how J.C. Ryle summarizes the gravity of this account in his commentary on Luke. He says, here we see the proof that the prince of peace Is stronger than the king of this world, stronger than the king of terrors, and that though death, the last enemy, is indeed mighty, he is not so mighty as the friend of sinners. You see, Jesus Christ guarantees that death does not have the final say. Jesus guarantees the triumph. Of resurrection, And this brings us to verses 16 and 17. And now to our third and final point from the text before us. And that is the explosion of worship and witness. The explosion of worship and witness. There's a distinct response from all that were gathered there for this true miracle. Luke says in verse 16, that fear seized them all and they glorified God. And if you look in verse 17, he says, the report about Jesus spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. The people who witnessed this exploded in worship and in witness. You see, when Luke says that fear seized them all, he's speaking of awe and wonder, not being scared. He's not talking about being scared. He's talking about awe and wonder. The people were truly amazed, if not, Yes, shocked, they had heard about such things happening in the past, like the account I mentioned before of Elijah, but now another great prophet had appeared before them who had done it as well, and yet still more distinct and more powerful. Look, they didn't know yet that Jesus was the Son of God. At least we have no indication that they did understand the fullness of what's going on here, but they're getting a glimpse of the glory of the Son of God. And they understood that after so many years of silence, God had indeed visited his people. That's why they're saying this, by sending Jesus, who we know to be the greater Elijah, the greatest prophet. The people were rejoicing at God's power and God's presence among them. But I think that this power and presence is shown to us to us even today in a wonderful phrase that Luke uses at the end of verse 15. do you look back there. He says that after Jesus raised the dead man, he did what? He gave him back to his mother. Don't miss this. Jesus sees the process through. Jesus sees the whole thing through. Not only does Jesus raise the dead, but he finishes the task. In this case, it's restoration. It's restoration of the son to his mother. It's that restoration of protection and provision and hope for her family. It's a tremendous display of divine grace. For we don't know how long it lasted, right? Maybe he went on to get married and have other kids. We don't know, right? But what we do know is that Jesus cares not only for the, the, the thing in the moment, the grief in the moment, right? But he cares also to see it through. Do you know the same is true for you? The same is true for us. We can say that in our lives, we get to experience two resurrections. And now you're like, Pastor Dan, you're just crazy. We do. We get to experience two of them. That is, if we are those who believe in Jesus Christ, What's our first one? What's our first resurrection? Our spiritual resurrection, we might call it. When we're born again. When we're born again by the Spirit, made spiritually alive from spiritual death. We've sung of it this morning already, have we not? Turn with me to Ephesians chapter two. Ephesians chapter two, I'll read verses one through seven. spiritually dead. And then there's those two words, probably told you 20 times, I'll tell you again, underline them. But God, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. I'll spare you a second sermon just on that passage, but hear me, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God made you alive together with Christ. This is what Jesus was talking about when he said, you must be born again. You must be born again. It's a work of the spirit. You were dead, dead, dead. If you're here this morning and you're a follower of Jesus, you have nothing to boast in. That's what Paul goes on to say. You've got nothing to boast in. God made you alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. So what happens when that happens? I remember distinctly the moment I was born again. Didn't mean I had everything figured out but I remember what happened. Perhaps you do as well. But what happens on a deeper spiritual level than our personal experience is this. We're ransomed back to the Father. We were dead in our sins following the course of this world, right? And Jesus says, nope. (laughs) I'm gonna give you back to the Father. I'm gonna give you back to him. You belong to him, we're restored in our fellowship with God and we're sealed for the day of our second resurrection. We're sealed for the day of our second resurrection. Don't miss this, brothers and sisters. Jesus on the cross bought you with a price. And when he makes that real in your life by making you born again by his spirit, you're given back to the father, reconciled to God and sealed for the day of the second resurrection. You know that when we die, hopefully you know this, our spirits go to be with the Lord upon death if we're Christians, if not, they go to hell. Um, But if we are in Christ, then we know that we're separated from our bodies and they go where? Into the grave and they become corrupt, right? They, They waste away, so to say. But when Christ returns at the end of days, what happens? Throughout the Bible, we see 1 Corinthians 15, Romans 8, and other places. We see that our bodies will be resurrected. Our physical bodies are resurrected in glory and they're reunited with our spirits and our glorified bodies. On that day, the the whole church, all the people of God will what? Once again, be presented to the Father as the true bride of Christ in the glory of the new heavens and the new earth. So don't you see? Jesus, through his own triumphant power over sin and death, both in His powerful words, seen here in Luke 7 and even in his own resurrection from the dead, through his triumphant power, we just like the widow, but in an even greater way, we're restored. We are restored. Maybe we're more like the man than the widow. In a greater way, we're restored to divine protection, divine provision and divine hope, hope that doesn't fade away, true hope of glory. And that should lead us to do exactly what the people here do, explode with worship. And even more, I think we should follow their lead. (laughs) We should follow their lead and witness to the good news of the resurrection with others. I mean, it never ceases to amaze me just how quick we are to marvel at and share stories like the one we heard at the beginning about Walter Williams. I mean, just go home and Google people who they thought were dead but came back to life. And it's amazing the number of hits you'll get in your search engine. We're quick to share those. But how often are we meek and maybe even feeble to share about the resurrection power of Jesus Christ? My earnest hope and prayer for everyone who's seated here this morning and everyone who will hear my voice on the recording of this message at some later time. My earnest hope and prayer all week has been that we would not only experience the power of Jesus's resurrection, but that we would be those who would be quick to share the power of it with others. You know what I'm gonna say next? It's our vision, to share our lives and the gospel with others while standing firmly on God's word. Listen, let the world mock you and scoff at you. Let them doubt the truth of the accounts. Let them do whatever they want to do, but don't ever be content to be silent. If you've got resurrection power running through your veins, how can you be silent? So I don't wanna just crash the plane. I wanna land the plane well. So let me conclude with some application questions. First of all, I think looking back at the beginning of this passage, I would ask you, do you understand the gravity of sin and death? Have you comprehended to the best of your ability the gravity of sin and death? I mean, many people turn their ears and their eyes away from the gospel because they see themselves as some type of immortal. They may not say that, but they're like, I've got time for that, right? Later, I'll be able to get serious about Jesus. Later, I'll be able to get serious about religion or whatever they say. If you're here this morning, guess what? The time is now. The wages of sin is death. Unless you repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, unless you do that, you will spend eternity in hell. You must know that your sin is serious. But you know, that question is also for believers. Do you understand the gravity of sin and death? Do you understand that your time here on this earth is a gift from God? Do you understand that you're only a heartbeat away from committing the most unimaginable horror? Do you realize that, that it's but by the grace of God? Rejoice, cry out, God, give me more grace, help me. And help me not to waste my life. Help me not to to use my salvation as some kind of crutch or some kind of license to just live however I want. No, get serious about the Lord and live for him as the word calls us to. Here's another question. Do you, like Jesus, move toward those who are suffering? Do you move toward those who are shrouded in that pall? of death? Do you find yourself moving toward those who are hurting? I think the question stands. Do you move toward the suffering? Do you delight to celebrate? Do you delight to worship the triumph of the resurrection in your life? Do you live for worship? Do you stand in the mirror every day and say, my primary purpose is to glorify God and enjoy him forever? That's my chief end, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. If you don't know where I got that from, it's from our own Westminster Shorter Catechism and Larger Catechism. Question one, what is the primary purpose of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. And then the last question I have for you is, do you actively share resurrection hope with other people? Do you actively share the hope of the resurrection with others? May God help us. Amen and amen. Would you grab your bulletins?